Thank you for watching this online message from Riverstone Church. We hope that this content encourages you and helps you further develop your relationship with Jesus Christ. For more information, visit riverstonechurch.net. There you can learn more about us, view additional messages, submit your prayer needs, and even give online. Thank you for watching, and may the Lord richly bless you. I ask you, if you will, to turn with me to John chapter 12. Uh, normally, it's our custom to stand for the reading of the Word, but this morning I'll be reading a a little bit uh, lengthy passage, more so than normal, um, so you remain seated and, and just follow along. Brother Johan, thank you for what you shared with us. Uh, the Lord had already put it on my heart this morning just to give a quick moment of pastoral exhortation and encouragement. I, I know our devices these days make it so convenient to have the Scripture with us anywhere we go, in our in our pockets, not only the, the Bible, but multiple versions of the Bible, multiple commentaries and maps and virtually anything that has to do with scriptures, we can find it online or on various apps. But I would really encourage you, if you don't have one, or if you've gotten out of the habit of carrying it with you, to, to get a paper Bible and, and to bring it with you. Um, you know, Amos talks about a day coming when there'll be a famine of the Word of God, and I don't necessarily equate that with being a famine of the word being preached or spoken forth, but a famine of maybe the resources and the, the, the opportunity to look at the word of God becoming scarce. If you have a Bible now uh, and something that you can have with you and continue to hide into your heart, obviously uh, that's, that's provision against a day of famine not much different than maybe getting an extra bag of rice or some extra bottles of water and stashing them away in a, in a, in a, for a time of need. Um, John chapter 12. We're going to begin with verse 12. And I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Scripture says, The next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing, look. The world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. 
If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. And Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal him. Isaiah said these things because he saw the glory, and he spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me, I have come into the world as a light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Father, we come to you this morning with grateful hearts, And when we open the pages of this book, we hear the voice of God speaking. And Lord, I pray that you'll open our hearts today to hear from you, to give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and a heart that understands what you're speaking to us as a congregation, to us as a people, and to each of us as individuals. As we stand before you, Lord, seeing your glory in this passage seeing so much revelation of of prophetic fulfillment, seeing your character spoken forth, 
seeing your goodness and your kindness and also seeing our need for salvation. Lord, I pray that you'll give me uh, uh, words of kindness and compassion, a winsomeness in delivery, Lord, that will be attractive, but I know what you do today, Lord, will not be in any way dependent upon me, but a divine work of the Holy Spirit as a gift of the Father through the Son. And Lord, we commit this time with you in the sweet and the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen. You were here last Sunday and heard Brother Robert's message. You know, this is a continuation of the narrative. The day before had been a a glorious day. It had been a grand day. It was a day of visitation. Jesus was in the house in Bethany. It was a day of vision as Mary broke an expensive bottle of perfume, anointed the Savior, and pointed to the work that was to be accomplished a week later on the cross of Calvary. It was a day of vision, but not everyone present had eyes to see. See, the day before was a day of victory. It was a day of visitation. It was a day of triumph. Jesus was the guest of honor at a grand feast as the healing and the raising of Lazarus to life again was being celebrated. Jesus had been at work, and the day before was a grand day. Now's a good time to pause and say today is a mighty good day because Jesus is still at work. Since the beginning of the year, he he has visited us. He has provided. We've heard testimonies of healing. He's encouraged. He has strengthened. He's visited us, and in doing so, he's been speaking vision to us, a vision for the harvest, a vision for Riverstone, a vision for downtown, a vision for Crozet, a vision for our own families. He's speaking to us about his plans, about his will for us, and about his work in us question is, do you have eyes to see that? Because if he did nothing else between now and December 31st, we could already declare this a year of victory. Like you, if we started to question each other, I don't have time to enumerate all that God has done, and neither do you. But the question is, do you remember it? Is it before you? See, the day before was a good day a day of visitation, a day of vision, a day of victory. But our text begins with these three words, the next day. What about the next day? What about tomorrow? What about the day after? Where will you find yourself? Now, this text is so rich, it would be easy just to pick one verse and preach a series of sermons. But I read the whole thing to give a big picture Because among all the other things that this passage reveals and and that we learn, this presents us with six types of people. People who were there. They, They weren't people off that were hearing about something from far away. They were there. They were involved. They were part of that crowd as Jesus made his Palm Sunday triumphant entry into Jerusalem. And the question I want to put before us this morning is, which category would you find yourself in? First category we see is actually in verse 12 and verse 13 of our text. 
And, and this one, you know, we're, we're, I'll just be up front. We're starting from the negative and working forward. Because these were people who wanted a Jesus just to suit themselves. You see, throughout each of the gospel accounts, time and time again, we see the people clamoring for a political leader, for a secular savior. Go all the way back to the coronation of King Saul where the people said, we want a king. Why do you want a king? Because we want to be like every other nation around us. And it was a disaster. And here in the New Testament, still there were people looking for a secular savior, one who would break the tyranny of Rome, one who would step in and bring back the glory of the political kingdom of Israel. And as Jesus entered Jerusalem, the people shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Now that word Hosanna is derived from two Hebrew words, and it could be rendered literally as save us now. Hosanna, save us now. Hosanna, save us now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's a phrase that comes from the psalm themselves. See, every day during the Feast of Tabernacles, a passage of Scripture called the Hallel from Psalm 113 through Psalm 118 was sung. If you go back and look at Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26, you see that the psalm begins to close with a cry of salvation and with these words, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The crowd that gathered that next day gave themselves away when they added the phrase, the king of Israel. You see, palm branches at one time were a symbol of, of coronation, a symbol of glory, but by this time in Jewish history, the palm branches had become more of a symbol of Jewish nationalism, going all the way back to the time of the Maccabees, to those who began to push back against Roman occupation. You see, they wanted, it seems, a Jesus to satisfy their nationalistic political, even religious ambitions. They wanted a Jesus that suited themselves. And the question is, are we any different? Is your Jesus a conservative-minded Republican? Or is he a socially conscious Democrat? Is the Jesus you want one that is a political savior? Or maybe your Jesus is so loving that he would never dream of sending a person to eternal damnation and the torment of hell. Is your Jesus the heavenly butler ready to wait on you hand and foot? Or the genie in the bottle ready to cater to your every wish? Muslims see Jesus as a good teacher. The Mormon is a big brother. The Jehovah's Witness is the first of all of God's creation. The Hindu sees him as one of many gods. The so-called atheist sees him as irrelevant. The wicked sees him as annoying. The sinner is sympathetic. The reprobate hopes that he's tolerant. But that's not the Jesus of Scripture. He is King of Kings and he is Lord of Lords. Revelation 17, verse 14, and when you go back and look at that verse, it's that same verse that tells us that he will make war on his enemies and destroy them. As king, he is sovereign. He does not answer to us. 
As king, he does not bow down to us. As Lord, he does not obey us. He is holy. Leviticus 11.44, For I am the Lord your God. Ye shall therefore sanctify yourselves, and you shall be holy as I am holy. Scripture reveals him, and this passage refers to it as the judge of all. Consider these words. Gather around me. Learn how senseless it is to worship wooden idols or to pray to helpless gods. Why don't you get together and meet me in court? Didn't I tell you long ago what would happen? I am the only God. There are no others. I bring about justice, and I have the power to save. I invite the whole world to turn to me and to be saved. I alone am God. No others are real. I've made a solemn promise, one that won't be broken. Everyone will bow down and worship me. It's Isaiah chapter 45. Romans 14 continues, For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account to God himself. Philippians chapter 2, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess in heaven and under earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, Scripture doesn't reveal a Jesus that may fit our way of thinking or satisfy the desires of our heart. Jesus reveals himself as who he is, the author of, and finisher of our faith, according to Hebrews chapter 12. You see, it's Jesus who is the plan of salvation. He said it this way in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh to the Father but by me. He's the source of salvation. He said, neither are, they were said of him in Acts chapter 4, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. He's the plan of salvation, the source of salvation. He is the giver of salvation. John chapter 15, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 and 5. He chose us. We didn't choose him. You see, it's possible in, in our minds and in the deceptivity of our heart to make a Jesus that suits us. Many have done it. It's called the sin of idolatry. And it will leave you horribly deceived and horribly disappointed. You can do that. Or you can serve Jesus as he really is. As he really has revealed himself. You see, there were people in the crowd crying out, Hosanna, save us now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. It seems they wanted a Jesus just to deliver them from the hand of Rome. But there were others in the crowd, verse 17, verse 18, the crowd that had been with him, Scripture says, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead and continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. There were those in the crowd that day, perhaps with palm branches in their hand, caught up in the moment shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, who only wanted to see a sign from Jesus. 
That's why they were there. And every generation has its seekers of signs. In the earthly ministry of Jesus, Jesus encountered them over and over. Consider, for example, the Pharisees. And the Pharisees came forth, Mark chapter 8, and they began to question with Jesus, seeking of him a sign from heaven, tempting him. And Jesus sighed deeply in his spirit, and he said, why does this generation seek after a sign? Truly I say to you, there shall be no sign given to this generation. You see, the problem with people who always are seeking a sign, there's never a sign that's good enough or convincing enough. We've been given sign after sign after sign. Look, Look out the window. Creation declares the glory of God. In Psalm 19, verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Romans chapter 1, verse 18 and 20 instruct us, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all of the unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely specifically his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. Look out the window in the things that have been made so they're without excuse. Creation is a sign there is a God a God who is eternal, a God who's creative, a God who is powerful. And if you look at the blooms on the trees, a God who is mighty good and beautiful. Prophecy is a sign that points to him. According to Josh McDowell's new evidence that demands a verdict, he's explored it and says that the Old Testament, which you'll perhaps remember was written over a 1,000-year period by multiple authors as the Holy Spirit moved upon them, The Old Testament contains almost 300 references, 300 prophecies pointing to a coming Messiah. And every one of these prophecies was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Consider just one this morning. We see it in our text. Jesus entered Jerusalem riding on a donkey. And more than 500 years before this day, Zechariah prophesied when he wrote, Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, humble, lowly, riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. You see, we have every sign we need. Creation speaks of a God who is good and eternal and powerful. The prophecies point us to Jesus Christ, humble, lowly of heart, but yet who came bringing salvation. And our experience testifies of him. It's been said that someone with an experience is never at a loss against a man with an argument. Well, up to a point, there's some truth there, but only as the experience is rooted in the truth of the Word of God, only as it is viewed through the lenses of Scripture, supported by the Holy Writ as a witness to the world. And the reality is that Christ still saves, and in saving, Christ still changes lives. And the man who was born blind, John chapter 9, after his encounter with Jesus, summed it up better than ever I could. I'll put it in my own words. said, I don't know what happened. 
I can't explain it all. I can't parse it all out. But here's what I know. I was blind, and now I see. We have every sign we need when we look around this room and we see lives that have been changed. When we consider what we once were and what God has done for us, we know that there is a God, a God who brings salvation in his power and his glory and changes us. Our own consciences are a sign from God. Romans chapter 2, verse 14 and 16 says that some people naturally obey the law's commands even though they don't have the law. This proves that the conscience is like a law written in the human heart, and it will show whether we are forgiven or condemned when God appoints Jesus Christ to judge everyone's secret thoughts. When your conscience pricks you, and you know I shouldn't have done that, or your conscience pricks you and said, I wished I would have done that, that is a sign of God who has written his law, the effects of the law, on the heart of every living person to show that he's true, to show that he's trustworthy. We have a sign in this marvelous book, the Holy Scriptures, which reveal him. No prophecy, the Bible says, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Second Timothy says that all Scripture is breathed out by God. Martin Luther said Scripture is the manger in which we find the Christ child. You see, we not only have the Scripture, we not only have creation, our consciences, the prophetic word, experience, but the Holy Spirit leads us to him. Ezekiel tells us that it's the Holy Spirit that wakens the dead heart. And 2 Corinthians 4, verses 4 through 6, it's the Holy Spirit who opens the blind eyes so that we can even begin to see the glory of Christ. Therefore, we are utterly without any excuse because we've been given all the signs and all the evidence we need. The Pharisees didn't need another sign. They were there when Jesus healed the leper. And Jewish theology taught only God can heal. They were there when Lazarus was brought out of the tomb. Jesus said, I'm not giving you more signs. You've not believed what I've already shown you. And that brings us to verse 37 of our text, this third category of people. When Jesus said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. There were people in that crowd who saw the signs but yet refused to believe. They knew. They saw, they experienced, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, these were, were men who were students of the word. They were well-versed well in the Old Testament scriptures. They knew the prophecies. They had to have known that Christ was the fulfillment of the prophecies, yet they refused to believe because they didn't want to lose their positions. They didn't want to face their own hypocrisy to the point that these were the very people, John chapter 12, verse 10 and 11, tell us were plotting to kill both Jesus and Lazarus. 
Why? Because they refused to believe what they knew to be true. Romans chapter one talks a lot about people like this. It says they don't have any excuse because they know about God, but because of their love for sin, their love for themselves, they don't honor God. They're not thankful to God. They don't worship him. In fact, it says, Romans chapter one, verse 21 through 32, they have willingly chosen to believe a lie and God has given them over as a result to their perverse, sinful desires. They even know that God has said that anyone who acts this way deserves to die, but they keep on doing evil things and even encourage others to join them. We acknowledge there is pleasure in sin for a season. If it wasn't fun to sin, we wouldn't struggle with it. But afterward comes the judgment. It's a fourth category of people, verses 42, 43. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. These are people who knew the truth. Even, at least with their heads, believed the truth of what they'd seen, what they'd heard, what they'd studied but they refuse to follow because they love their positions and their position was a barrier to following Christ. Many of these authorities believed, but they did not follow because they didn't want to lose their power, their, their influence. The high officials had already decided, according to John chapter 9, verse 22, to excommunicate everyone who confessed him as the Messiah. And there's those who would have. They knew, but they didn't because they love their power and position more. Fear of man is a barrier to following Jesus Christ. Proverbs 29, 25, the fear of man bringeth a snare, but whoso puts his trust in the Lord shall be safe. Love of the world, 2 Timothy 4, 10, is a barrier to following Christ. Matthew 19, 22, love of stuff is a barrier to following Christ. And there, there are many today who were raised in the church, who know the truth, who even at one time made a profession of faith in the truth, and they're no longer following him. And this morning, Jesus calls out once again, follow me. It's time to come back. Today is a day of salvation. Verse 16, you were to say, Brother Jay, where are you in this? I believe right here is where I am. I, I trust this is where I am. I feel confident this is where I am. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him that there was a group of people, the fifth group. These were people who 
didn't understand everything, but they were following Jesus by faith. See, we got to remember these disciples were real people, far from perfect. Mark chapter 10, verse 37, they were ambitious. Mark 4, verse 40, they were forgetful. John chapter 20, verse 25, they were skeptical. Mark 9, verse 10, they were slow to comprehend. And Mark 14, 29, they were overconfident. John 18, they were quick, quick to react. Luke 24, they were slow to believe. Anybody want to put your hand up with me? You see, they did not know what we know now, but they followed by faith. They didn't have the full revelation of Scripture that we have. And even with the full revelation of Scripture, I have to confess, there's still some things I don't fully understand. There's still some things I'm working through. There's still some things I'm searching out, but I am following by faith because He is God, and He is Lord, and He is worth it. It could be argued that Jesus' disciples really understood very little, but yet they followed. They followed by faith. And Jesus said in John 12, 26, whoever wants to serve me must follow me so that my servant will be with me where I am and my Father will honor everyone who serves me. See, don't worry about what you don't know. Don't get hung up on what you don't yet understand. You've seen enough already. The signs are all around us. You've heard enough already to follow him by faith and let him teach you along the way. And in verse 21, our final group. People who came to Philip, and they said, you know, we just want to see Jesus. We could have preached the whole sermon right here from verse 21 because there is a world that is waiting to see him. Jesus said in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world, and he that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. And in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus looked at his disciples and said, you're the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. See, there's a world of people still waiting to see, to hear, to know. And it's the Lord's design that they would see him and hear about him and know him through us. And it could be because today is a day of some religious significance, Palm Sunday, the traditional day. It's a day like Easter, like Christmas, when people perhaps go to church that normally wouldn't. Maybe you're here because somewhere down in the depths of your heart, you wanted to see Jesus. And I pray by God's good grace, we showed him to you today through the songs and the worship, 
and through his word. Yesterday is gone. Today's the next day. Tomorrow will be a next day and the day after that. And where are you in this narrative? If you've been following your own made-up Jesus, Jesus, it tickles your ears and sweet and hops every time you snap your fingers. All I can lovingly say, it's time to repent of your idolatry and put your trust in the real Jesus. 1 John 5.21 says, We know that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has come and has shown us the true God. And because of Jesus, we now belong to the true God who gives eternal life. Children, you must stay away from idols. He gave his life so that you can know him. If you're looking for a sign this morning, if you came here and you said, Lord, show me a sign today, I would point you to Romans chapter 2, verse 4. It says, you surely don't think much of God's wonderful goodness or of his patience and willingness to put up with you. Don't you know that the reason God is good to you is because he wants you to turn to him? I know life brings some tough stuff, some hard things, but there's always something good. Something good. And you may think I'm being silly with you. I'm not. The, the, the sweetness of a strawberry on a day when everything else is falling apart. A pat on the back or a hug when life has just brought disaster. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights in whom there's no variableness, neither shadow of turning. And Romans tells us it's because in his kindness, in his kindness, God wants us to turn to him. Look, look, at, look at the signs. Look at what the good things in your own life. And there is something good if you'll just look beyond the pain and the tears. If you know the truth and you're refusing to believe and refusing to follow, I would ask you to consider these words of Jesus. Again, his words, not my words. The fearful, the unbelieving, the abominable, murderers, whoremongers, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars will have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone. It's the second death, according to Revelation 21.8. If you don't believe what you know to be true, write those words down. Put them on a post-it note. Put them on your mirror. Because God is true. And he's true in the hard things that he says, just like he's true in the good things that he says. But if you're like me, still trying to figure it all out, understand it all, and just walking by faith, then take comfort in these words. And praise team, you can come on back. John chapter 10, verse 27 through 29 my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, 
and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Yesterday's gone. Today's the next day. What are you going to do with this? Praise team's going to minister to us. And always struggle with how to close a service. You know, I could get specific and go down the list. If you're here and you don't believe, even though you know it's true, you need to come up the altar. If you've been looking for a sign and no sign's good enough, you probably need to come and see if God will give you a sign. Well, he's already given you sign after sign after sign. I could say if you're like me and you're still trying to figure this out, but you love God and you sure love Jesus and you want to follow him, this is the place for you. Let me just say this. This is wherever you're at this morning, category one through six. If you came today just to see Jesus, show me Jesus. This is not a, ma- the altar is not a magical place. There, there's not some magic that takes place just by kneeling here. It's true, God can meet you right where you're sitting, out in the parking lot across town. But there is something in Scripture where it seems that faith is strengthened and catalyzed when we make a step of faith. So the altar's open. Whatever your category, come and worship. Worship.